The History Channel original podcast. Washington is without question the greatest hero and leader in American history, but he's a stranger. People see him more as a monument than a person, but you can't understand him unless you acknowledge that he was human. If we truly want to know that man, then we have to look at everything, warts and all. George Washington, America's first president, trained by the British to command an army, yet destined to wrest America from their grip. Possessing the boldness to unite the colonies and imagine a new kind of a nation. An icon, a visionary, and a man. One whose headstrong ambition and stubborn vanity were both his greatest assets and most dangerous liabilities. Washington's story is much more than what we think we know. From the History Channel, this is Making Washington. I'm Andre DeShields. Despite all his flaws, Washington was the one man that made this country possible. He could have been king, but that was not him. He wasn't interested in power. He had power. Washington was not born great. He took a journey toward greatness. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The story we know of George Washington's life almost always starts with the American Revolution. Or when he was a boy, confessing to chopping down his father's cherry tree, saying that he could never tell a lie. But that story was invented years after Washington's death, slipped into the fifth edition of a popular biography. The real Washington's life begins in 1732 in a crowded, modest home on a Virginia tobacco farm. Peter Stark is the author of Young Washington. To understand where Washington's intense ambition comes from, it's really helpful to look at his family history. The adversity for him begins with the death of his father. At the time, Washington was just 11 years old. Biographer Alexis Coe. George Washington, like Barack Obama, like Gerald Ford was raised by a single mother, and that's often overlooked in how that impacted him. She was ambitious, she was savvy, she managed her estate very carefully. Here's the late General Colin Powell. Heaven knows how she handled all of that, but she did. And she played such an important role in his life to give him that structure of character, of competence, of believing in yourself. Biographer Edward G. Langell. She passed to Washington a very kind of a hard-headed realism, teaching him strict self-discipline and being very tough on himself. She doesn't give him time to putter around and waste the years 
dreaming. But Washington's options for success are limited. He's now the head of his household. And so George is supposed to be educated in London like his two older half-brothers. That's not happening anymore. Washington, as a young man, is sort of second-tier gentry. He's not one of the great wealthy families of Virginia. Without the formal education of his peers, Washington's only opportunity is to take action. Historian Joseph J. Ellis. John Adams went to Harvard. Thomas Jefferson went to William & Mary. George Washington went to war. George Washington, like his mother, is a practical person. He knows from a young age that he is going to have to rely upon himself. He pins his hopes on rising through the ranks of the military. At the time, colonists can only serve in the provincial forces. They aren't eligible for commissions. Yet Washington is determined to become a British officer. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Alan Taylor. Washington's trying to impress his higher-ups within the British Empire. He hopes it's going to go on up the chain and will reach powerful people in London who will be impressed with what he's doing. In 1754, at the age of 22, Washington finally receives his first command. He sets off for the unsettled wilds west of the Appalachian Mountains, seeking adventure, glory, and recognition. The man who will one day become the so-called father of his country is an uneducated Virginia colonist, dressed in British red, on a mission to serve his king, George II. Here is historian Douglas Bradburn. Washington is the colonel of Virginia regiment by age 22. He hasn't led men in battle at all. He has no experience. Washington is trying to make a career for himself in the military, and he feels like if he fails on this mission, that his career is over. The British send Washington to defend their claim on a strategic piece of the frontier. The Forks, where three rivers meet, will one day be called Pittsburgh. But for now, the Ohio country, as the area was then called, is land claimed by Britain, France, and the indigenous nations who have lived there for generations. There are many different tribes in this area. There's a very complicated political alignment between the various tribes and between the French and the, and the British. And to assure their own control of the region, it's always better to be able to play off the different European nations against each other. Washington's assignment is a diplomatic one. Reach the Forks before the French arrive and convince them to leave the Ohio country peacefully. In this land of shifting alliances, Washington's strategy is to approach the Half-King, an ambassador of the six Iroquois nations, who at this point is a friend to Britain. The Half-King knows and controls much of this terrain, and Washington needs his cooperation, his power, and experience to bolster his own campaign. Historian Colin G. Calloway explains. The half-king is an accomplished warrior, and he is now a statesman and a diplomat. This was his world, and Washington was coming into it. They wanted traders to come in because Traders brought lots of things that Indian people wanted and needed. But what Indian people in the Ohio country wanted was to preserve their own independence. And they wanted to preserve their own land. Only a handful of non-Indian guys 
knew enough to negotiate the treacherous waters of Indian politics and international politics in the Ohio country, and George Washington was not one of them. At the Forks, Washington finds the half-king. The Iroquois ambassador has already spotted the French nearby. The half-king thinks this is the moment to attack. He leads Washington to the site where the French have set up camp and presses Washington to ambush them now. But Washington is there on reconnaissance. He's not eager to start a battle. This is his first major command. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but he does not want to go back to Virginia empty-handed. No war has yet been declared between France and Great Britain, but all it's going to take is one spark to set the tinderbox alight. On May 28, 1754, Washington, with 40 of his men, follows the half-king and a small group of Ohio Iroquois allies up a steep ridge to Chestnut Hill. The French are camped below. As biographer Edward G. Langell explains, the situation is precarious. Washington's instinct is to hold back, but the half-king is able to goad him into action. Suddenly, Washington is in a bloody battle against the French. Washington almost immediately loses control. He's become a spectator. Lieutenant Colonel George Washington can do nothing but watch as his first command descends into chaos. He has no control over his men or those commanded by the half-king. The French leader staggers toward Washington, holding out a letter, begging him to read it. But it's too late. Within 15 minutes, the battle is over. At least 10 French soldiers are dead. And their leader, Ensign Joseph Coulin de Villiers de Jemonville, has been decapitated. When the half-king kills Jumonville, the French commander, in front of his eyes, what had looked like a victory now looks like a tragic fiasco. In the aftermath, it becomes clear that Jumonville's mission had been the same as Washington's own, to send a message to their rivals to clear out of the Ohio country peacefully. Peter Stark again. The letter that the French are trying to deliver claimed that they were actually a diplomatic party delivering a message to the British governor of Virginia. So Washington essentially attacked a diplomatic party. This is the moment that causes the French and Indian War. This is the war that led to the American Revolution. This is an era that's very strict about following the rules of warfare. George Washington has just breached those rules. It's one of the most shocking moments of his life, a moment where he could get in very big trouble indeed. Washington's first commission is a failure. He hurries to protect his reputation before his fledgling career is ruined. On the day after the battle, he writes three separate letters to his superior, Virginia Lieutenant Governor Robert Dinwiddie. His first instinct is to justify what he did to suggest that it was the Frenchman's fault, not being clear that he was on a diplomatic mission. If the French prisoners tell you any differently, don't believe them. 
we had to do this. And then he follows up almost immediately with another letter to this effect. Washington writes, Since writing the other letter, I have still stronger presumption, indeed almost confirmation, that they were sent as spies. As it turns out, Washington can tell a lie. Taking care of your reputation, for Washington, that was exceedingly important. The notion this is a man who can't lie, you know, Washington never lies, of course he lies. He's an ambitious young guy who overreaches on occasion, and he's lucky. Some of these things could have derailed him, and he's lucky that he didn't get killed. When he's young, he's undisciplined, and he doesn't quite understand the ways of the world, and so he writes letters to Dinwiddie that he later very much regrets. While Washington hopes to persuade his commanders of his version of the events, the French are hardly willing to let things lie. Their stronghold Fort Duquesne is not far from where Washington and his men, 100 British regulars and 300 colonists, await the inevitable counterattack in a makeshift garrison. He builds a fort that he names Fort Necessity to suit the desperation as he sees it of the moment. It's about 50 feet in diameter. I mean, that's like the size of your lawn. He's put it in the worst possible position. He has not cleared the field of fire. The French and their Native American allies will be able to fire down into the fort with impunity. This is not really a fort. It looks much more like a death trap. But he's still kind of cocky, despite everything that he's gone through. And he's very confident that he's going to succeed. In a letter to his brother, Washington writes, I shall expect every hour to be attacked and by unequal numbers, which I must withstand. Let them come, whatever they will. And come they do, with overwhelming force and firepower. Washington and his men are essentially trapped. The French have total control over the situation. They're determined to punish Washington, to embarrass him, possibly to kill him. Hours into an assault by the French and their Native American allies, the 22-year-old George Washington confronts the cost of his own inexperience in command. The powder is wet, their guns are failing. Another few minutes and George Washington been dead. And then all of a sudden, there's the extraordinary opportunity to end that fight. The French allow Washington and his men to lay down their arms. While they will survive, the price will be signing an official surrender. Well, the French don't want a full-fledged war. Allowing Washington and his soldiers to live and to go back to Virginia, having been embarrassed by defeat, is the best possible result of this confrontation. But Washington doesn't speak French. He enlists a Dutchman under his command to translate a man who speaks some French and some English. But, as it turns out, the soldier doesn't understand the document very well at all. Without realizing what he is agreeing to, Washington signs the French terms. The documents of surrender demand that Washington confess that he has assassinated Ensign Jumonville to being a war criminal. He's in over his head. He never expected that he would have to surrender. And so he's ill-prepared for that particular moment. 
Months later, Washington will learn the truth about the contents of the documents of surrender. For now, though, he pushes on, intent on his ambitions of military success. He writes home to Virginia, describing his success in Ohio. The French called to parley. We agreed that each side should retire, that we should march away with all the honors of war. The story plays well. Washington writes an account that appears in the colonial newspapers, and in that whole account, there's not one word of surrender. Of course, it didn't happen that way at all. And yet, he becomes a folk hero in the eyes of many Virginians. Historian Annette Gordon-Reed says Washington has the skills of a natural politician. He had a sort of cunning and a kind of understanding about how things operated, how society operated, how the world operated, that I think served him well. Governor Dinwiddie and the men of the House of Burgesses pass a resolution thanking Washington for his good conduct. They wipe out much of the embarrassment and humiliation that Washington had gotten himself into. But the recognition he earns in Virginia is short-lived. Eventually, the French will publish these articles of surrender. They will announce to the world that this young American officer has confessed to assassinating a French officer. But if you think about it, assassin in English and French are pretty much the same. But he was desperate. I think he was afraid. And yet Washington denied that interpretation of the capitulation for the rest of his life. In a letter from 1757, he writes, that we were willfully or ignorantly deceived by our interpreter in regard to the word assassination, I do aver and will to my dying moment. In London, the lords in charge are saying, if we let this behavior stand, we'll lose all North America. We need professional British soldiers. We need professional officers. We can't rely on people like this guy, Washington. As a result of this debacle, British command reorganizes the Virginia regiment and makes its American officers, regardless of rank, subordinate to even the lowest of British officers. These changes do more than dash Washington's hopes of advancement. They demote him from lieutenant colonel to captain. Washington resigns in protest. Washington resigned, and he writes this great letter in which he says, how could a man allow himself to be demoted for no good reason? It was from the advice of my friends and my own honor that I declined, not because I didn't wish to be in the military anymore. I shall have the consolation of knowing that I have hitherto stood the heat and brunt of the day, and that I have the thanks of my country for the services I have rendered. He's got to be wondering if he has a future. He's convinced that he's never going to command troops in action again. But events will soon conspire to reunite Washington with his military ambitions. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The frontier is engulfed in the war between the English and the French for control of the continent and the wilderness of Ohio country is ground zero. Despite his missteps, Washington is now one of Virginia's most experienced frontier fighters, and the British need all the experienced help they can get. Just seven months after his resignation, George Washington finds himself back in uniform, this time as a volunteer aide to British General Edward Braddock. Braddock's a veteran commander, but a veteran of European wars. And so he doesn't know what he's doing once he gets into North America, which is a different environment. Washington is willing to go as an aide-de-camp because it carries some respect. And Braddock apparently gave him some indication that he could expect a military commission. The mission for General Braddock and his 2,400 British troops is to cut a road of more than 100 miles through dense wilderness in order to move horses, artillery, and men into position to attack Fort Duquesne. The forks of the Ohio were seen as almost the key to the continent. Whichever imperial power controlled that controlled access to the interior of the continent. Washington has battle experience in this exact territory, He worries that Braddock is endangering his forces by allowing too much space between their lines. The French and Native American enemies could easily cut them off and trap them. Washington tries to warn Braddock of the risk of attack if they don't close their ranks. But Braddock, confident of his superior British military skills, ignores the young colonists. The British forces are already nearly at Duquesne. Suddenly, chaos erupts. French-Canadian troops have hit the front of the British column. The British are trapped, surrounded by enemy fire. The French from the front and their Native American allies from the tree line on both flanks. The attack has played out exactly as Washington warned. But he has little power to get them out of their circumstance. As an aide-de-camp, he's not in charge of anything. He can deliver messages. He is responding to the orders of General Braddock. But he doesn't have any troops under his command. Within a very short period of time, every single British officer has been either killed or wounded. By some miracle, Washington survives. His horse is shot out from under him. Three bullets go through his coat, but he remains unharmed. Braddock himself is grievously wounded. When Washington at last finds him on the battlefield, Braddock tells Washington to assume command. In this moment of almost complete breakdown, he is able to compose himself 
and to give the orders that would enable this army to start its retreat. Washington rallies the rear guard to provide cover while he mounts his retreat, narrowly saving Braddock's force from annihilation. But the British losses are severe. In just three hours of fighting, nearly 1,000 of the 1,500 British troops are dead or wounded. Washington's never seen anything like this. I mean, this is destruction of human life on a colossal scale. The scene is devastating. Washington writes in a letter to Colonel David Humphreys. The dead, the dying, the groans, lamentations, and cries along the road of the wounded for help were enough to pierce a heart of adamant. General Colin Powell. Nobody who is ever going into battle comes out of battle the same way. When you see blood in front of you, when you see body parts laying all over, you realize this is no longer a game. This is the worst. This is the worst. When he's young, he wants to be in battle. It's romantic. It's where he can prove his valor. And those things sort of fall away. He will never be again that naive young man who sees war as an adventure. In the aftermath of the battle, Washington's family receives the devastating news that he has been killed. Days later, he writes to his brother to rectify the error. I have heard a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, but by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability and expectation. This idea of providence becomes a touchstone for Washington as he views his own accomplishments. Joseph J. Ellis. Washington developed the notion that somebody was looking over him, that he should have died. And he attributes this not to God, but to providence. He believes that because those forces have saved him, that history is on his side. Washington emerges from the battle a war hero. His fame spreads beyond his home of Virginia. Newspapers and broadsides and tavern talk throughout America become filled with discussions of Washington. Do you know that it was an American who led those troops off the field? Washington had joined the Braddock campaign with a view to reclaiming, rebuilding his reputation. Ironically, that happens because one of the things that colonists can take from this is the unmistakable courage of George Washington. At that stage, the Virginians need a hero, and he's the available candidate. His heroic image is only enhanced by his striking physical appearance. Watching Washington in public settings, everybody is wrapped because they have not seen anybody with his size, his strength. Washington is tall for his time. He's around 6'2", the look of a natural athlete, someone you would see on the basketball court today or the football field. Historians are always talking about how great he was on the dance floor, in the ballroom, and all the women write about it all the time. Abigail Adams, when she writes about seeing George Washington for the first time, I mean, it could be in a romance novel. Abigail Adams writes, I was struck with General Washington. <laughs> You had prepared me to entertain a favorable opinion of him, but I thought the one half was not told me. 
The gentleman and soldier look agreeably blended in him. He's a temple, sacred by birth, and built by hands divine. Author Nathaniel Philbrick describes Washington's appeal. The thing about George Washington was his self-control. It wasn't as if he didn't have emotion. Underneath him were seething real passions that gave a crackle and intensity to his physical presence. It added to his charisma. It doesn't take a lot to see that this is a human being who is a compressed spring that's about ready to release itself onto the American scene. As the French and Indian War intensifies on the frontier, the colonies need a leader, and the name on everyone's lips is George Washington. His command of the Virginia Regiment is the shaping experience for his, his role as a military commander. It becomes an elite unit Washington is looking for an acknowledgement from the British that Americans are equal members of the empire, equally worthy of respect. So if the British Empire isn't good for you militarily and it's not good for you economically, what else is there? That's next time on Making Washington. Making Washington is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Daniel Turek edited and mixed this episode with assistance from Max Michael Miller. Washington was originally produced by Rail Splitter Pictures for the History Channel. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.